Thank you, Gareth, and uh, it's good to see everyone uh, this evening. Um, our title for this evening is The Best Attitude. And over the past uh, two weeks, David and Duncan have brought us through the first chapter of the book of Philippines. Um, here is the story so far. The letter was written by Paul to the church in Philippi, the first church that, that Paul founded in Europe. Philippi was part of Macedonia in biblical times, and it is now found in modern-day Greece. It was a leading city of the province, a Roman colony. Acts 16 records the time when Paul was there and how Lydia became a follower of Christ, then a jailer and his family. It was a church whose partnership had brought Paul much joy. He talks about them throughout this letter with great affection. But Paul is now imprisoned in Rome, and he writes this letter for a number of reasons. He writes to thank the people for their gift, for their faithfulness to him, and for their prayers. And he writes to encourage them to live for Christ. In 1997, I was on a Crescent summer team to Pozzuoli near Naples in the south of Italy. I have many memories from that trip. Some of those memories are of Robert Abraham's amazing impressions of a hen laying an egg that will live long in the memory. But I also remember studying the book of Philippians for the first time. Puzzuoli was the place where Paul landed in Italy. You can read about that in Acts 28. Then he, he traveled to Rome where this book is written from. During that summer team, we had the opportunity to share with the local people the joy and the hope that are found in Jesus, the joy and the hope that, that Philippians proclaims. And I hope to do the same tonight. Maybe it's a message you will hear for the first time. Maybe you just need to be reminded of the truths from this amazing passage once again. The church in Philippi was a special group of people for Paul. And generally speaking, it seems to have been a healthy church compared to many of the churches that Paul wrote to. But there does appear to be division within the church. There's some envy or rivalry that's going on, particularly what we can read about in chapter four of the book. Duncan uh, finished uh, chapter one with us last week, and at the end of chapter one, Paul challenges the believers to stand firm against external conflicts by having one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. And as we move into chapter two this evening, he deals with the internal conflicts found in the church. So let's read this well-known passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love and participation, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing 
from selfish ambition or, or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul begins this section by asking them four rhetorical questions. I like the way that the New Living Translation puts it. His first question is, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Paul is not doubting that these are the realities that we find in Christ. He doesn't even doubt that they are present amongst the congregation at Philippi, but he wants them to reflect on what Christ has done for them and consider whether these qualities are really evident in their lives. Because these things are true, he urges them to be of the same mind, to have the same love, to be in full accord and of one mind. Paul wants there to be unity amongst the believers. How do we deal with disunity? The answer to disunity is not simply a call to unity. It starts with a call to humility. Humility is the foundation to, set, to settling disputes. It's the secret to maintaining harmony and learning to love one another. Humility is despised by many. Certainly the people of this Greco-Roman city would have viewed it as a sign of weakness. It was associated with failure and shame. Reputation, strength, and honor were the virtues that they strive for. Even in today's society, we are trained to be successful, to achieve, to focus on our goals, to sell ourselves in an interview, we have a culture of being self-absorbed and of self-promotion. But the kingdom of God is built on humility. Jesus himself taught us to humble ourselves like a little child. So I want to consider three aspects of humility. The first is that humility starts in the mind. In verse two, the word mind is repeated twice. It says, have the same mind and one mind. And then in verse 5, Paul says it again, have this mind. Humility begins in the mind. It needs to affect what we think and how we view one another. 
Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit is when we have an exaggerated view of our own importance. Being selfish means that we are absorbed with ourselves and we lack consideration for others. Instead of these things, they are to count others more significant than themselves. How do we manage to view others as being of such significance? It's not easy, is it? Is, is there something, is this something that we just pretend to do out of a false sense of humility? No, we count others as more significant than ourselves by remembering that all people are made in the image of God and that Christ died for them. So humility starts in the mind, but humility continues into our actions. Verse 4, we must look to the interests of others, not just to our own interests. And the third thing, humility will end in exaltation. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So humility starts in the mind, it continues into action, and it ends in exaltation. Now, I, I want us to focus on the key verses uh, from our passage, from verses 5 to 11, as we consider the perfect example of Christ's humility. Paul turns to the Lord Jesus to find the answer. He turns to him to find the best attitude. This section may have been Paul's adoption of a hymn from that time, or it may have been Paul's own inspired writing. Whatever the case, it is an incredible account of, of the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to study it under four headings, the first of which is pre-existence. Verse 5 says this, Have the mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was in the form of God. The word form is a stronger word than maybe it seems in our English translation. It means that Jesus was in his very nature, God. His true and exact nature was God. Jesus always was God, even before he came into the world. This is something that I didn't grasp when I was a child. Probably, if I'm honest, I didn't grasp it until well into my teens. I thought that Jesus began to exist at the first Christmas when he was born in Bethlehem, but that's not true. He is the eternal son who was with the Father from the beginning. John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is eternally, truly, and totally God. And this is what, it, what makes his humility so incredible. Jesus didn't cling to the privileges of his deity. In his mind, his attitude, he didn't count his equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he stripped himself of all privilege and he emptied himself. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? 
Well, it doesn't mean that Jesus gave up the qualities and the attributes of deity. We must never deny Jesus' divinity. Jesus emptied himself in that he gave up his position in heaven and came to this earth being born as a baby. Earlier we sang, from heaven you came, helpless babe. Entered our world, your glory veiled, not to be served, but to serve and give your life that we might live. This is our God, the servant king. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The incarnation is what we celebrate at Christmas, that God became man. Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. When it says that he was born in the likeness of men, it doesn't mean that he only appeared to be a man, but wasn't really a man. It means that when you looked at Jesus, he was like a man because he was a man. That's the point of what Paul is saying. He actually was a man. And when Jesus became a man, nothing of his deity was subtracted from him. It was by addition that he took on flesh. This was something I found really helpful as I was studying the passage for this evening. Nothing was subtracted from him. Jesus added more as he took on flesh. He was truly God and truly man. And he became a servant. Jesus' servanthood is powerfully displayed in his actions in John 13, when he rises from the Passover supper and begins to wash the disciples' feet. This was a task that was normally reserved for a non-Jewish slave. Yet the Creator God stooped to wash the feet of those he had created. He even washed the feet of the man who would betray him. Another of Graham Kendrick's hymns says, says this, meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Oh, what a mystery. Meekness and majesty, bow down and worship, for this is your God. We naturally look out for our own, own interests above others. We are selfish, we show envy, and we have rivalries. But when we think on the attitude of Jesus, how can we treat each other with contempt? How can we refuse to make that apology to another brother or sister in the church? Lord of eternity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Bow down and worship for this is your God. The third uh, title is one of atonement. Jesus Christ chose to be born as a baby, to live as a man, to suffer as an outcast with no place to lay his head. But he humbled himself even further 
by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus wasn't obedient to death itself, but he was obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death on a cross was a criminal's death. Deuteronomy teaches us that anyone who died in this way was cursed. Why would he do this? It was only through his divine love for us that Jesus would die for us. He paid the penalty for our sins, the penalty for our rejection of God, our selfishness, the glorification of ourselves in place of God. Jesus was obedient to the point of death to rescue us. Have you realized how much Jesus loves you? He promises to save anyone who places their trust in him, anyone who believes that his ultimate act of humbling himself to the point of death was done to bring forgiveness and to bring hope and to bring life. The cross was used by the Romans for brutal humiliation, but it now stands as a symbol of true greatness and hope. As Christians, we proclaim that the creator of the universe did not stay far away, but he came down to us, to this planet as the man Jesus. He demonstrated real humility in, in mind and action. We can't just stand in awe of Jesus' attitude, but in light of all that Jesus has done, we must enter into this same attitude and imitate it in how we treat other people. Verse 5 told us to have this mind among ourselves. And finally, his exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Because of Jesus' humility, his obedience to the Father, his fulfillment of prophecy, and his completion of the plan of salvation, he has been given the name above every name. What name did the Father give him? It doesn't specifically say in the passage, but many believe that it was Yahweh, that, that uh, title that I put up in the first uh, point. God's name, which could not be uttered by man. Therefore, Jesus is publicly declared to be divine. Jesus is God. Hebrews tells us he is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is exalted to the highest place. Isn't it interesting to note in verse 11 uh, that it says that even in Jesus' exaltation, he humbly brings glory to God the Father. In the end, every knee will bow and every tongue, whether willingly or unwillingly, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Will you do this willingly and worship him with all of your heart from now? Does this message have the transforming influence on us as a congregation that Paul 
recounts in verses 1 to 4? Do we follow Jesus' model of humble service to God and to others? I'm thankful that many brothers and sisters in this church and in the global church do follow Christ's example and are being transformed by the work of His Holy Spirit. Paul knew that these things don't come easily to us. We are rebellious, aren't we? So many times our attitudes slip back into the old ways. But Paul's answer was to hold up Christ as the example and as the answer. The best attitude which does not fade. The church at Philippi needed to be reminded of the mind they must have. And we need to be reminded of that too. This message transformed Paul's life from a person who hated Jesus and wanted to, try, uh, to kill his followers into the apostle who shared this message with the people of Philippi, transforming their lives. It was a message that started to transform the continent of Europe. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Let's pray. Father, uh, this evening we want uh, to lift up your Son. We declare that He is and always was God, that He became a man through the Incarnation, that He humbled Himself even further and became obedient to the point of death on the cross. We thank You that You have exalted Him and given Him the name above all names. We marvel at your plan of salvation and at Christ's humility. Help us to be humble. And through the work of your Holy Spirit, help us to love others without pretense. Help us to imitate Christ and to find unity in mind and purpose as we serve you. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.